Welcome to this live podcast at the Wright City Conference, taking place here at the University of Concordia in Montreal. This event is hosted by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, Canada's leading research institute and think tank for the prevention of mass atrocities, in partnership with Amnesty International and the Raoul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. I'm Duncan Cooper. And I'm Alexandrine Royer. This is the third edition of the Wright City Conference, an initiative established in order to bring together inspiring thought leaders who will provide valuable insights regarding pressing human rights issues. Our aim is to provide Canada and the international human rights community with a constructive platform during this time of great upheaval. In this series, we'll be joined by leading human rights voices who will share their perspectives on some of today's challenges in the preservation and protection of human rights. In recent years, political observers have raised the alarm, warning of the steady erosion of democratic principles worldwide. As globalization brings us closer together, we in the human rights community are faced with increasingly complex challenges. The primacy of a human rights-led international framework as a refrain of global politics is being confronted by a new set of actors that reject basic freedoms. Authoritarian regimes are using new technologies to expand repressive state apparatuses and reassert their hold in domestic affairs. Populist politics are threatening to reverse some of the hard-won accomplishments of the human rights movement. The challenge on how to resist and confront these assaults on human rights continues to gain increasing urgency. In the wake of the international community's deteriorating consensus, Canada, and notably the city of Montreal, have continued to steadily position themselves as human rights leaders. Today, we'll be hearing from a range of human rights activists to share their insights on what some have labeled the end of human rights. Rather than a discourse of surrender and abjection, we are hoping our speakers will inspire calls to action and renew commitments to the human rights movement. We'll hear from the Honorable Romeo Dallaire, Special Advisor to the UN, Adama Dieng, Professor Jennifer Welsh, as well as MIGS founder, Professor Frank Chalk. So we are now joined by Jeremy Kinsman. He is a former Canadian diplomat. He served as the ambassador to Russia, Italy, the EU, and the United Kingdom. Um, he founded an international democracy support program, which ran for a decade, and he is currently a distinguished fellow at the Canadian International Council. Jeremy, welcome. Hi. So uh, we'll get right into it. I wanted to ask you about populism. It's something that has gained increased visibility and scrutiny in recent years um, as a major destabilizing force for global cooperation. The insular worldview championed by leaders like Narendra Modi and Viktor Orban threatens to undermine the democratic consensus uh, of upholding universal human rights. So given your decades-long career as a diplomat, what factors have you identified as contributing to this new democratic backsliding? Yeah, look, I, populism in itself isn't a bad thing. You know, you can be a democratic populist. Mm -hmm. Franklin Roosevelt was a populist. Uh, of course, yeah. Um, but it, the, today we've begun to identify populism with, with nationalism. And we've begun to identify certain uh, electoral techniques with populism, which is you slice and dice the, uh, the voting body to divide people to get your numbers by getting a majority to get you believe that you can protect them from the others. Mm -hmm. And so it's divisive populism. It's negative nationalistic populism. 
The other thing that's problematic is its nationalism. It rejects international solutions, cooperative solutions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, as Trump said, America first, always America first, or Hungary first, or Poland first, or Russia first, or you name it. It sure looks like China first. So all of those things are bad, but it's not populism per se. There's an erosion in belief uh, that the people who, uh, I guess, were used to sort of running things for a long time, uh, a belief that maybe they don't deserve people's confidence, that they really know what they're doing. And you know what did this more than anything was the 2008 financial crisis that the folks who were telling us what was good for them and, and their economic management turned out uh, to have made ghastly mistakes. And those ghastly mistakes, uh, you know, revealed a kind of a, an inbuilt unfairness to things. Fairness is really the most important word uh, in politics today, I think. Uh, uh, populists tend to try to communicate uh, to their base that they're being treated unfairly by the system and by others. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, there is unfairness. Widening income disparities yeah. are held to be very unfair. So those constitute the grievances. And they're eroding confidence also in our system, in democracy. That uh, maybe democracy's got built-in unfairness in it. And so it's up to prove, uh, to us to prove, that it, it isn't so. And that, and that the purposes of, of democratic politics indeed is to project and to provide fairness. So it's really this conflation with unfairness and democracy that you think ought to be parsed in order for people to feel less yeah, yeah. You need leadership pitted against each that's other. credible and people uh, who, who are pretending to lead, uh, who, uh, who one, uh, seem, seem to be honest and seem to understand you and me. You know, when <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt died, okay, mm -hmm. so his funeral has taken place outside, you know, along whatever it is, Constitution Avenue, outside the White House. And his casket goes by, and there's a man, a middle-aged man, who's weeping copiously. And someone said, D did you know the president, sir? And he said, yeah. no, but he knew me. And that, uh, that is the kind of leader that, that people miss. And, you know, that's, to some extent, Trump's support. I think it's phony. Yeah. But if he's convinced a whole bunch of people that he knows them. Um, so, you know, that, that's what leadership is. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why democ some democracies are turning to non-professional politicians all of a sudden. Yeah. You know? And what do you think the risk of that is in Canada? Of course, we're not immune to these same threats, but we do seem to have been insulated from the worst of this nationalist populism yeah. so far. No, you're right. I, I tell you, one thing that is concretely true is that we did manage the, the uh, financial crisis very, very well. So it's just good governance from the get-go. Very good governance from the get-go, institutionally, and you got to credit to people as mm -hmm. well, you know, and we had a consensus. I would say the other thing is that we are used to diversity. And it's not that we have diversity that makes us uh, such a model for others. It's because we know how to manage it. And we know how to manage it because we kind of manage that, uh, what will I say, relationship of, 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 of tolerance to the need for consensus. And so we've become kind of, if I may say, 
practitioners of compromise. We know how to compromise. And if you can't compromise, you can't run a democracy because democracies are run by yeah, compromise. Yeah. What you get is the polarized problem that you now see in the United States or you see with Brexit or you see in some of the more populous parts of Europe. And uh, so we haven't got it. And I think it's because we're used to this, this pluralism mm -hmm. and managing that pluralism. And is there, any, uh, is there any space for Canada to intervene internationally? to kind of export this model or? or Yeah, we've been doing it. I yeah, mean, okay. We've been doing it uh, for 25 years when I was ambassador in places like Italy and, and Britain and, and at the European Union, we gave almost countless seminars in, uh, in managing pluralism. Oh, so this is happening then, even oh, as we yeah. speak, yeah. And, and, and I tell you, countries, countries changed their way of doing stuff because of what they learned from us. I mean, I remember, uh, in, in France, uh, telling uh, the, the French that, you know, you can't, if you're going to police a district, um, you know, you can't drive through poor districts with uh, two guys in a squad car. You got to have people walking on the street. Community-based yeah, policing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In France, mm -hmm. in, in French, it's called la police de proximité. Oh, I see. And by the way, uh, when you do it, uh, make sure there's a woman walking with them too. Mm -hmm. And the British started to do this. They began to hire special constables. They put them out in threes. Okay, there'd be somebody who'd look like a you know meat and potatoes white Brit guy. There'd be somebody who looked South Asian or something. There'd be a woman. And they're walking on the sidewalk. And it's that kind of stuff. It's getting, uh, uh, I mean, I think where the world leader at is getting uh, sort of non, uh, whatever Stephen Harper called them, legacy faces uh, doing the news on television. You know, and, and, and it, it shows other people. And now when you look at uh, French or, or British public television, you'll see that they're doing it too. And so the symbols of inclusivity yeah. are vividly available to everybody. A kind of soft power approach. Totally. That totally. contrasts with yeah. what the U.S. has been doing for decades and now beginning to I, I, less I, so. I think so, you know. Uh, like, I'm from Montreal, born in Montreal. Mm -hmm. uh, it, well, I was alive when Jackie Robinson broke into Major League Baseball mm -hmm. in this city at the Lormier Stadium with the Montreal Royals in my lifetime. It was still uh, excluded for an African-American to play a major league sports. Well, yeah. that sounds ridiculous now, but gee whiz, that's not, I mean, I don't think I've lived that long, but uh, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's really not that, that long. And, and, and so we've come a long way and what we've had to learn is a certain amount of humility to recognize the people who haven't come that far, it's simply because they haven't come that far. They want to go that far and we want to help them. And to have the benefit of memory. That's right. Yeah. And experience and, and, and mistakes. So if I could switch from the sort of Canadian focus to some of the bigger threats to democracy worldwide. Um, what is your take on the role of China in the coming years as having an impact on global notions of democracy, human rights and freedom, and the potential power struggle that could ensue uh, with China as the new great power. Yeah, it's so difficult to talk because it's such a big topic. It, it's very clear to me that uh, the China-United States story is going to be the big story of, of our time. Yeah. And uh, is it 
a rivalry. Uh, the Americans don't really concede that China is a rival. But you know, the Chinese GDP has multiplied since Deng Xiaoping put in the reforms, economic mm -hmm. reforms in 1978. Do you know it's doubled 80 times? And so it's, it's amazing. And it seems as if its potential is almost infinite. Yeah. And I guess that part of Chinese self-belief now increasingly is that it is almost infinite. And to them, the kind of Western European American domination of world affairs for 150 years or so was just a blip. Yeah. Just a blip. And so to them, they're returning to their rightful place. They uh, don't want anybody interfering in their country with China. And they don't intend to interfere in anybody else's country except to their benefit, okay. economically. But they don't care what system you have. Okay, in terms they, of the 5G networks and digital surveillance. That's, they, they care about 5G because they yeah. know it is the innovationary instrument of modernization yes. of economies. And they want to win. They want to have the best. But they don't care if in Montreal uh, somebody's unjustly accused of a crime and put in jail or something. Um, they are not interested in other people's so-called, they would say, yeah. human rights. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not... So their behavior, paradoxically to us, is kind of more convenient yeah. to some countries in parts of the world because they know that the Chinese are going to lend them money or build them a port or mm -hmm. something, and they're not going to hassle them about human rights, you know? And, and so that's, uh, that's complicated. Uh, we have to uh, continue to, to press internationally for the acceptance that human rights are rights. Mm -hmm. they're, they're international norms. They're not our goals. They haven't come from us. They come as much conceptually from the global south as from the global north. Of course, the original story of decolonization and yeah, yeah, everything. We, 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 there's mutual learning here, but it is an international norm. And uh, so that's, but I, I think we're, we're, we're wrong to, to postulate that China in this is our global adversary. They're not. I mean, they're, they're, their, their best card is their efficiency. And sometimes, you know, dictators can make an easier call on complicated subjects like climate change yeah. uh, without having to go through the consultative process and, and compromise and, and, and all of those kind of, you know, trying to build a consensus. They just simply go ahead and do it. And it, it gives people the impression that the Chinese can build high-speed rail as fast as they do. In a decade, right? Yeah, yeah they can do anything, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and, and of course, it's not true. There may be something big missing there, and, and we suspect uh, there is, but if there is, it's up to the Chinese themselves to correct it. Interesting, yeah. No, I mean, I, uh, I've been thinking myself lately on the topic of something like climate change. Um, if China does not go along with a global consensus, for example, by experimenting with geoengineering yeah. um, and thereby perhaps delaying uh, the rain season in the rest of South Asia, that could be a diplomatic crisis. Yeah. And because China can act unilaterally, then the consensus that we've fostered for the past 75 years 
could be thrown into major yeah. disharmony. As a matter of fact, on that topic, China's doing its best right now. Okay, okay. yeah. I yeah. think they are. I mean, I, they, they've got a lot of coal-fired power plants and stuff and everything, but, but uh, and they're, trying, they're trying to work internationally, you know. And here's an example. That makes them a more positive international player on that major topic that some people, like Angela Merkel, claim is the number one priority in the world, climate change, yeah. than the United States. They look better, and that's why when you look at these, these world polls, on, like the Pew Institute, and uh, it shows that China and Russia, by the way, have higher marks for leadership and approval than the United States does. You'd say that's nuts, but that's one of the reasons. Yeah. They get stuff done. So on the topic of Russia, there's been a great deal of talk about intervention, not only in the American elections, but also in the Baltic states. How do you, given all your experience and having been posted in Russia in the past, uh, conceive of this problem in the decades forward? And also, if it poses a threat to Canada? Okay, um, well, there are a couple of questions there. Um, I think uh, what the Russians did vis-a-vis -vis the 2016 American election is totally unacceptable, mm -hmm. okay? And I think they get that now, uh, and it is impermissible. I don't know what difference it made, okay, at the end of the day, but you can't do that. Now, they think it was just payback, okay? They think that the Americans have been screwing around with their political process for some time. Putin's not a Democrat, and, and uh, he has a thin skin, and so when uh, there were crowds saying, you know, Russia without Putin in 2011, 2012, and uh, Hillary Clinton was sort of applauding them, uh, it seemed uh, he was justified to a lot of Russians in saying that those crowds were instigated by the United States. Therefore, that's the payback. The of course, he's wrong. He's wrong. That was done by Russians who were tired of being treated like political babies by, you know, some kind of self-appointed master. As to, to years to come, I, you know, we just need understandings that that sort of thing is impermissible. Um, the Russians are tempted to exercise their real talent for cyber. I mean, you know, and, you know, when you think about it, they're not a superpower anymore, um, except that they retain that nuclear capability. But in cyber, they are sort of a superpower. And cyber power is the strategic collision uh, of the future, and its cost of entry Mm -hmm. It's pretty cheap. Yeah, yeah. Compared to... I, I read about the team and it was... Compared to carrier groups or something like that, you know. Uh, and, of course, the Chinese are very good at it, too. Yeah. So yeah. there have got to be some understandings about that. Do they pose a, a threat? Uh, you, you mentioned the Balkans. Yeah, I, I can understand. They got involved in the Montenegro uh, bid to become part of NATO. They've been involved in some of the elections in Serbia and elsewhere. But, you know... Um, and it's up to those people to make sure it, it doesn't happen. It didn't happen in the Ukrainian election now. I think part because they, they didn't know who they wanted to win. But it, let's just say that they're backing off a bit. I hope so. As to Canada, I don't think they're a threat to us. I in mean, terms of electoral interference online? No. Misinformation? So no. I, no. I think it's uh, pretty easy to control. And, and if anything gets screwed up in our democracy, it's going to be because we screwed up. You know, Got not, it. Not because <laughs> the, the Russians. And they're... They're not an enviable model for, for Canadians, really. 
Um, so I, I, I don't worry about that too much. I want to make sure our systems are clean and, and, and protected. But, uh, but I, don't, I don't think anybody seriously in Russia is thinking of influencing a Canadian election. So if I could pin down one of your sort of central points then, it's that although Russia may present problems, has presented some problems, it doesn't posit a credible alternative to the sort of Western global consensus that's been in for so long now, whereas China perhaps does. Absolutely. And therefore, and therefore that makes it a much bigger contender as in shaping a performer, the future. As yeah, a performer, yeah. I absolutely believe that's true. Putin maybe stylistically is a model that some tin pot dictators here and then <laughs> yeah. might want to you know, emulate, though actually they're principal stylist uh, lives right in the White House in Washington. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I don't think beyond that that there's, there's much. Russia uh, d it does believe in, in national interests, but it is also a multilateral country. We, we shouldn't forget that. And, and, uh, and in that respect, uh, their objection, more than anything else, is to potential U.S. unilateralism. That's what they really object to. Um, anyway, I don't want to put them on a, a you know an even ground. This, yeah. You know, this isn't whataboutism, but just to say that they have their grievances as well. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Hey, thank you. It's been illuminating. Um, Jeremy Kinsman. We hope you enjoyed this latest podcast, and we look forward to bringing you new content in the future. To stay up to date with what we have planned, please follow us on Twitter at Mix Institute and look for our monthly newsletters on our website.